1: Welcome to Real Vision Live. I am Ed Harrison for Real Vision, and I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming James Davalos, who's a portfolio manager and research analyst at Horizon Kinetics, for his inaugural Real Vision interview. James, welcome to Real Vision.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you as well. And you know, we spoke a little bit before. Um, uh, you guys, you're coming. You're coming from a research shop that is uh, very value based. Maybe you can walk us through, since this is your inaugural uh, visit to Real Vision, of uh, what you do and your firm and what uh, your bent is from a uh, investing perspective.
2: Sure. So Horizon Kinetics is a fundamental bottom up, I would call us a eclectic value oriented, mostly equity manager. But one of the things that's differentiated our firm over the years has been our independent thinking where the the partners at the firm have always limited their reliance upon external data sources. And they really want to use source data and original documents and original thinking to then formulate an opinion. And we believe that that's really the best way to arrive at pricing inefficiencies in the markets. So I joined about 15 years ago and have been following a variety of different sectors and themes and investments. And today, we have really arrived upon a focus on what we call hard assets, uh, capital light approach to hard assets. And it's really a a extension of our bottom-up philosophy and looking through a lot of the other drivers in the markets, and this is what we've arrived upon from a fundamental basis.
1: Yeah, I want to get into that because I think that is really interesting. But before we go there, let's actually talk about the markets because I want to get your market view and get a sense of what's going on in the markets and why it is that you've uh, chosen the the strategy you have. You talked about value for a second there. Uh, obviously, you you're eclectic to a certain degree. So you, you, not necessarily value, but value is doing relatively well, or it has since uh, the reflation trade. You know, once we got to a vaccine. Uh, Once we got to, um, you know, right after the US election, there's been an aggressive rotation uh, and cyclicals have taken the leadership. What's your view of where the market is and this rotation into value and how that plays into your investment uh, uh, strategy?
2: Sure. And I think that brings up a really good point that my colleague, Stephen Bregman, when he was on Real Vision, he brought up our research into indexation. And what is in the value indices, if you will, is really different from what we consider to be value today. And I think that there's a lot of different drivers in the benchmark, in these cyclicals relative to where you want to be on a secular basis. So I think what's happening today is somewhat of a mean reversion or an inflection point trade. But when you drill down into what's in these value-based indices, the, the root of the indices is in book value and multiples. But if you were to unpack that a little bit, if something trades at a low book value multiple, chances are there is a low return on assets. And that low return on assets has to be levered up to earn a reasonable return on equity. And given the nature of that business, the capital intensity and the cyclicality, you're going to have a lower earnings multiple. So unpack these indices, and you see a lot of financial services today. And they need a steeper yield curve. It's really tough to make money if you're a bank or an insurance company, and you have a flat yield curve. So then you drill down into the industrials and some of these other companies, which I agree. They're they're not going away. But if you look at it's not a hundred percent blue skies for the airlines, the cruise lines, the hospitality plays. There's there's been a lot of these really aggressive reopening cyclicals that might have run ahead of themselves, but that's really not what we're focused on. I think it's long overdue given the duration and the growth complex that these types of names get their day. But just because you could argue that the growth complex is extremely overvalued. It doesn't justify bidding up the the value to a lower relative or a higher relative value compared to the growth complex,
1: yeah, so I mean, basically, what I hear you saying is is that when you look at the bottom from a year ago, really, you know we've had some aggressive asset price inflation, and even though we've gotten a catch up with regard to value, Um, it's not necessarily the place, the kinds of companies that you talked about, industrials, financials, you didn't mention energy, but also energy relative to growth where you want to be.
2: Yeah, I think that there are niche opportunities within the the greater subset of what the market considers to be value. But I think you need to be very selective and pay a lot of attention to the nuances of each business model and how they can navigate the next three to five years, not just the next three to five months, where I think a lot of people are playing this as a reopening, reflation trade, and they're not really looking out past maybe the middle of next year. They're looking at the economy reopening, the vaccine levels getting higher, the stimulus checks getting into people's hands, and then these uh, fiscal bills being passed. But I mean, this is a much longer game for people that want to compound over three, five, five, seven, 10-year cycles.
1: Right, And that's interesting, you mentioned the longer term perspective. when you were talking about your intro uh, of what you guys do, you didn't mention time frame in terms of your investing philosophy. What is the time frame that you're looking at for the investments that you're making?
2: That brings up a really good point where the the name of the firm Horizon Kinetics, and the genesis of the firm name Horizon was that when the founders of the firm, Created Horizon in 1994, the impetus was we can create a competitive advantage against the street, if you will, by extending our time horizon where we don't need a one year catalyst, even a two or a three year catalyst. But if we do our proper business analysis and then value these businesses appropriately, if we're willing to wait for a catalyst over a five, seven, 10 year period, that's to our distinct advantage. And then on top of that, when you're able to do that, you have a higher implicit discount rate in the stock where if you see a catalyst, so today, there's a catalyst with the reopening, and you're seeing the, the Vegas stocks, the airlines, the cruise lines, the hotels being bid up. But if there's no catalyst, you can buy these at a much higher implied discount rate, similar to well a normally functioning yield curve in the bond market. I guess you can't really compare it to the yield curve today
1: yeah you know uh when you talk about this macro environment and looking over that time horizon that you're talking about, which is longer term, and you say yes now we're uh we're going into hard assets writ large, if you will. What does that mean to you when you think about hard assets? It's different than what it means uh, for everyone else. I think that you have a a, a a unique definition, and how are you playing those hard assets?
2: Sure. So when we look at what is a hard asset, it's a a, a tangible, high-quality, finite asset with a fairly stable requisite amount of demand. So think about different parts, dif- different components within energy base metals, precious metals, land, agriculture, things like that, where they're tangible, finite, and there's a very high base level of demand. But the problem with a lot of these companies or or the, the way to play these assets over a longer period of time is that the business models that they're in tend to be extremely capital intensive. And what I mean by that is they require a tremendous amount of working capital, And they typically have very high levels of debt in order to lever up what might be a high return on assets. So we try to get exposure to these hard asset and inflationary end markets via asset light business models. And so these types of businesses have a direct or an indirect exposure to these end markets, but absent the capital intensity. So they tend to be extremely scalable and have very high operating margins, which enables you to not only do well when inevitably there's going to be a cyclical trough, but then ultimately compound and thrive throughout the upcycle.
1: Right. And can you give me an example of some of these these companies or uh, the types of plays that you're talking about?
2: Sure. I, I think a really great example in the marketplace today are royalty companies, and I'll just simplify it for the purposes of this discussion. There's also streaming companies, and there's a variety of different models within the broad royalty bucket. But there, It's a very large liquid market in the precious metals uh, arena, um, a growing uh, market within energy. And then there's some eclectic ones in iron ore and, uh, and things like that. But basically, the business model is that these companies have a financial interest in the production of a mine or a well. And they have little or no variable expenses as the operator extracts the energy or the ore. So let's just use a a mine as an example. If BHP Billiton were to be operating a very large copper mine or iron ore mine, the royalty holder might earn, might hold a 5% royalty on all production out of that mine. So the miner is spending hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars to extract that ore. And the royalty holder is simply just cashing checks. And again, as I mentioned, there's different nuances within streaming agreements and royalty agreements, but these tend to be a really powerful compounding mechanism to play these inflationary end markets over full cycles.
1: You know, when you uh, have said the five percent, that's interesting. Uh, what uh, what's the incentive for say BHP Billiton? Or any other miner to uh, give 5% of their stream of cash flows away to another company?
2: So it's different between energy and precious metals. So in the energy space, these royalties tend to be a function of land ownership. So imagine you were a, a ranch holder in Loving County, Texas. You might sign an operating lease with Chevron to drill on your land where they give you an upfront payment. But In addition to that upfront payment, you also stipulate that 20% of all oil produced on your land is going to go to you as the mineral holder and the landowner as part of that lease. Precious metals are a bit different because it's more of a financing mechanism where, if you have a mine that requires a couple hundred million dollars to develop, But you're not in a position where you want to take on balance sheet debt where it has a cash interest burden. It's much more efficient to sign a royalty agreement or a stream. So just in a simplified example, you could get your upfront couple hundred million dollars to finish your mine. But then instead of paying cash interest, which starts accruing day one, you're just giving away incremental production in the future to the royalty holder. So there's two different types. One is a financing mechanism; the other is a function of land ownership. But the business models are very similar when you look at the operating metrics and the and the, the attractiveness of these businesses.
1: You know, the interesting bit about it is uh, when you mention full cycle returns, you you talk about the trough because to me, what's interesting about uh, the royalties is is that when you look at the cycle. You're getting a relatively stable stream of cash flows. How does that uh, work over the entire cycle for the royalty company versus, say, the underlying company that is uh, more uh, leveraged to the business cycle?
2: Sure. So I think a great example would
1: be the energy companies, the, the US
2: based energy companies in 2020. There's a variety of these companies that do not have any debt and have extremely high operating margins. And they actually, there's a few that actually were cash flow and net income uh, profitable through every quarter of 2020. So remember, negative pricing only existed for a day in what was an anomaly in the paper market, not the physical market. But many, many operators across the US were distinctly in negative IRRs for. Months and months on end. Some were negative IRRs for most of the year. So these companies were extremely profitable through the entire year, where you saw bankruptcies and you saw massive write downs and you saw negative net income in some cases for companies every quarter and the full year. So these businesses, the stocks might have gone down and been volatile in the royalties, but when you look at them from an operational standpoint, it was it was exceptional. When you look at the gold companies, it's similar, but it's actually even better when there's a down cycle for them because if you go back to the last gold peak in 2011, a lot of the gold miners were very aggressive in expanding capacity, and gold went from over 1,800 and back down and tested 1,000. So All of a sudden, they have debt on the balance sheet, they're expanding, and they have mines with higher break-evens. The a royalty company stock might go down, but you have no you have no debt and you have this stock that you can use to basically issue to sign tremendous royalty agreements at the bottom of the market when they're stressed and distressed sellers. So the gold companies, the gold, the, the gold streaming companies generally will also remain distinctly in the profit through the bottom of the cycle while investing accretively.
1: You know, if as an example, you know, for let's say you look at uh, GDX, uh, or you look at the spot gold price at a trough. What kind, and you compare that to the royalty companies. What kind of uh, return profile differential do you see at the trough?
2: Sure. So I think full cycle is is a is a I think a better example, and then I'll go to the trough because Mm -hmm. you go back to twenty eleven, you can look at. The GDX, you can look at the leading gold royalty company, Franco Nevada, and then you can look at SPOT. SPOT is down about 7 or 8% over 10 years. So pretty miserable experience if you bought, especially if you're rolling the physical contract and you have the decay and, 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 the, and the negative yield of that. If you bought GDX, you're down about 50%. If you bought Franco Nevada, you're up about 160%. So that shows you a full cycle where you've gone from the previous peak to the trough to where we are today. Personally, I think we've got a lot higher to go. Now, if you were to go to the bottom of the trough when you were actually around 1,000 an ounce, if you want to make a directional binary levered bet where you think gold is going to 5,000, you don't buy the royalty companies. You buy the most speculative levered small cap gold company that you can find where it needs, it doesn't even make money at 2,000 an ounce because it's basically a massive call option on the survival of this company. So that's not really what we're looking to do. We're looking to basically play this over a full cycle and avoid that binary bet where if you're wrong or you're early, you can get knocked out or lose a heck of a lot of money.
1: Yeah um, you know tell me then about how that looks in the oil space, like XLE as an example, uh, what does that look like?
2: Same thing. where if you go back to the, the 2008, I believe it was July 2008, oil was almost uh, 140 a barrel. So you come full cycle through today and oil is still down over 50 percent in the spot market. You know, XLE is down around 50%. There have been some dividends along the way. So it's a little bit of of a bad measure. But if you bought a royalty company that was still growing in its early stage of growth, such as Texas Pacific, you're up over 10 times your money. And so that's a bit of a unique scenario. And and they were very fortunate and wise. They never took on any debt financing. And they have an extremely uh, lean operating structure where at the time, they were printing ninety percent gross margins. Uh, but if you also go off the trough through the high, there's ways to again in energy off the the negative print last year through today. You could have bought some of these small cap companies where there's a very high quality operator in in Texas and New Mexico, Matador, where it got down to a dollar. And I don't think it was ever a going. Cons- it was ever a bankruptcy candidate. But now I think it's twenty two, twenty five dollars. So you made twenty five x, but just such a different risk profile to basically be willing to run into that burning house at the bottom of the oil market last year with that E and P versus the royalty co.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: Yeah, very, very interesting. And, you know, uh, behind that, I would say is. The concept that uh, we're we're potentially looking at inflation going forward, you know, not just asset price inflation, but actual real inflation, which means that people are thinking about hard assets. Maybe you can walk me through you know sort of the uh, the macro view that your house has in terms of the the fundamental Economic environment that we're going to be facing over the medium term—let's call it, you know, the next uh, six, twelve, twenty-four month time frame.
2: Sure, it, it's fairly simple. It's it's basically that the the amount of money supply growth is colliding with a fiscal dominance in central bank policy. The monetary game has been played for fifty years, and you're basically at the limit. And there's also political impetus worldwide to shift towards more fiscal dominance. You're seeing it with stimulus checks, and now you're seeing it with infrastructure and different types of spending bills. So if you have this money supply growth, 25, 27% M2 growth since the beginning of the COVID crisis, colliding with this, this fiscal policy, both the stimulus checks and the spending, and then all of a sudden the United States. Reopens in full at some point in 2020. There's obviously going to be a big demand component colliding with is a constrained supply side. So going back to these three royalty markets, just again to simplify, we'll use precious metals, energy, and copper as the as the as the bellwether uh, base metals. All three of these industries have basically imploded and been restructuring since the prior peak and now there's a new variable which is probably going to keep a huge cap on supply even more which is ESG so think mm. back to the last mm. copper peak which was 2005 2006 you had all of these global majors rio tinto anglo american glencore you name it basically scrambling to add capacity thinking that the brics growth was going to last forever it didn't the bottom fell out and they basically spent 15 years Restructuring, selling off assets, and streamlining the base. Same thing with energy. I mean, energy's had some fits and starts since the 2008 peak, but shareholders are basically just saying, divest, get lean. We're not funding growth with no cash flow anymore. And then also gold, going back to 2011, I mentioned everybody was expanding in 2011 and shareholders got fed up. So you've got this shareholder withdrawal from the market. So they're capital constrained. Colliding with ESG. So now even the, the energy companies are are probably most in the crosshairs, rightly or wrongly. The European majors are basically saying, look, we'll we'll extract what we have in the portfolio, but we're not even looking for new for new discoveries. And then you have US shale, which is kind of the only incremental growth where investors are basically drawing their line in the sand and saying no more. And there, there's similar dynamics going on in all of these industries. And open a, an annual report for Rio Tinto. Before they say one thing about the metals market, cash flow, corporate strategy, it's five pages on ESG. So even if the world was willing to give these companies money at 0% with infinite duration, the way that the, the tech companies are getting money. Can they, within an ESG lens, even add the capacity that's going to be contaminant with this spending and on the fiscal side? So, going back to these fiscal bills, there's a huge carbon driven spending cycle that's coming. The problem is not a problem, but a byproduct of that is it's incredibly energy and metals intensive. The amount of energy that is required to extract all of these base metals and rare earths and transport them and refine them. And then you have the call on the copper, the zinc, the nickel, all of these conductive materials. And then obviously, you have the rare earths, which are going into the batteries. So we think that there's a really unique situation going on right now, where obviously, there is going to be a change in demand in the intermediate and long term. But we think that the supply side is going to be constrained in these markets long before you see that shift happen.
1: Yeah, um the I, I, I don't want to get into the politics of it all but when you were talking about the extraction honestly the first thing that came to my mind is is that if it's ESG how is this even uh you know environmentally uh different than extracting uh oil fossil fuels for, uh from the ground because th- there seems to be a lot of energy being used to get ESG off the ground
2: yeah I mean that's It's an unfortunate consequence is that to get some of these rare earths out of the mound, you're digging up thousands and thousands of tons of earth, and what powers those those heavy machinery is is typically fossil fuel-based fuels, and then it needs to be transported, which is generally going to be fossil fuel-based, and then refined, and then it goes into these products, and then ultimately needs to be disposed of. the world is taking a step in the right direction but it needs to be more pragmatic about how it thinks about this and again i want to stay as far away from the politics of it as well but if everybody in the oecd world is doing everything they can to do to achieve these goals which i think everybody is collectively in agreement that needs to be pursued if the non oecd countries continue burning coal to power their countries and digging up Billions of tons of of earth to get these to get these materials out of the ground. We all live in the same in on the same globe, and you you basically can't just have some developed rich countries do it and everybody else just ignore it. So it's a very tricky problem.
1: Yeah, and you know, actually, when you talk about rare earths, I think about China, and you know, the fact that they've been in the headlines um, with a tete tete against. uh, europe, the u k, canada, u s, you name it. there's there's definitely tech global tensions that are that are happening. Uh, so definitely something to watch that that whole market. You know, on the on the uh, macro front, I want to go back to the whole inflation concept because when you're talking about not just supply constraints but also fiscal dominance, you're looking at a situation which a lot of people are thinking is going to create inflation. Um, Do you think that that has an impact in terms of the uh, the fundamentals in gold, precious metals in particular?
2: I think that anything that is finite and a store of value is going to have utility in the world ahead. And One of the things that I think is somewhat missed in the inflation debate, and there's brilliant people on both sides of this. There's the inflationists, the disinflationists, and the deflationists. But you can come about it through any number of highly technical macro approaches. But one thing that you can't quantify is behavioral finance. And this is something that I've been a student of for many years. And the psychological component of consuming. So let's say you do have this fiscal dominance, and you do see median households who start to have more disposable income. That's where the propensity to consume is. It's not a billionaire adding another zero to her net worth. But it's also the psychological component of realizing, what is the utility of saving when I'm going into a 10-year US government obligation with a negative real yield? What am I really achieving? Even if it wasn't a negative real yield, what am I really achieving if I was getting 160 basis points gross in the first place? And if you go back to the 60s and 70s, the seeds were sown well before you saw inflation really run away in the 70s, where you had Vietnam War spending, you had Medicare and Medicaid instituted, you had the removal of the gold standard, and then the tipping point was the OPEC embargo, where Main Street, if you will, realized I'm waiting three hours in line to fill up my tank. And by the way, it's exponentially higher than what I was paying before all this. And it's like, okay, well, what am I paying for apples? What am I paying for my clothes? What am I paying for all these other things? And I think that a certain component of the world, the wealthy, have already figured this out. And forget financial assets and forget things that are in the markets. Look at what's going on in. Things that are finite stores of value. So, pull up a, a Christie's auction and look at what people are paying for rare wines and whiskeys and art, antique cars and and things like that. That it's just booming, and it was booming last year in the middle of, of the crisis. And so, within that context, I think that there is a very large pool of people that see gold as a store of value and silver as well, even though it obviously has it, its industrial components. But I think structurally. It's going to be very difficult to convince people every with every day that passes to simply sit there and hold dollars, checking accounts at zero percent interest rates, all the way out to a ten-year treasury at one sixty.
1: You know that whole complex that you're talking about. uh, Let's use the term financial repression. it doesn't really sound that good from the average person's perspective. So when you talk about, okay, so maybe we're going to get the median household with a greater propensity to spend. They're going to get out there. They're gonna do some spending. But really, when you're uh, engaged in financial repression, you're creating a dynamic where uh, you know, there's this discord, uh, you know, towards uh, desire, if for lack of a better word, redistribution, so that, the average wage earner can get more. Yeah, you know how does this whole how does this play out over time? It, uh, that, that's my view.
2: Yeah, I I don't think that it's a, a binary divide where labor wins or capital wins. Because let's say we're in a the Fed seems to think that there's a range of benign or healthy inflation. In the 2% range. And obviously, they're going to, they have a willingness to let it run hot. Who knows how long or how hot. But to the extent that there are fiscal policies and different types of things that can empower labor as opposed to capital, I think it will distinctly benefit people that have been marginalized over the past 10, 20, 30, 40 years. But let's not forget who the biggest beneficiary of inflation is it's the debtors. And who's the biggest debtor on earth? The United States government. And ultra-wealthy people can borrow incredibly cheaply, as can corporations. And if they're paying back fixed-rate debt in a devalue or a declining value of base currency, then it's, it's distinctly to their benefit as well. So there is, there is a scenario where both sides can win here. But it, again, it's, it's a very fluid, somewhat tricky situation.
1: So right. Yeah.
2: That, that light was on a timer. <laughs> Sorry about
1: that. Excellent. That is, that's good. So, talk about ESG. There you go, right there. You guys <laughs> yeah, exactly. are, are doing a green, your a own green stuff.
2: certified building.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, when we were speaking earlier in the week about uh, some of the uh, plays that you have in the market. I do remember taking some notes on data companies. When you were talking about ESG, you mentioned data companies, uh, and these are uncorrelated, high-quality businesses. Can you run through that particular investment thesis?
2: Sure. We look at financial exchanges, which are now basically exchanges and data companies, but then there's also individual data and research companies. So uh, I'll talk about both individually. But think about a financial exchange it's really nothing more than a supercomputer that is matching buyers and sellers across a wide variety of different types of investment products so just to use an example the chicago mercantile exchange their business is mostly trading in rates interest rate futures currencies soft commodities hard commodities energy and Imagine in an inflationary world where there's rate volatility and inflation volatility, what that would do to every one of those asset classes. So they make money from volatility and volume. There, to the extent that there's increased volume to process another trillion dollars in trades, they just need to plug in another server. And on the back end, there's a data business which is basically related to all of the different types of trading, uh, pricing, and functionality, which is. Highly recurring in nature, it's almost fully, it's almost 100% recurring revenue, and then there's a clearinghouse. So these businesses are asset-light, very high scalability, and have the same indirect exposure to those hard assets that we that compared to those direct hard asset exposures that we mentioned earlier with the royalties and streaming companies. So we think that there's a variety of scenarios where the entire global exchange complex. In the US, the Intercontinental Exchange in Europe, Deutsche Börse, Euronext, the Australian ASX, the the Singapore Exchange has some really interesting things going on right now, where these businesses could really thrive given what drives their business in a scenario where it's not necessarily that accommodative to global risk assets, meaning more volatility, higher rates or volatile rates, and higher uh, CPI and PPIs. The other example are the data and research companies where they have proprietary data, information, and research, which serves these inflationary end markets. So IHS Market, which right now, it's, it's, it's under DOJ review to be acquired by S&P Global. They have hundreds of years, in some cases, of proprietary data and, and research, and their verticals are the market business's credit. They have metals and mining and energy, and then they also have all global OEMs in the automotive industry. So to the extent that there is inflation in those end markets, the demand from companies and the demand for that data and research is going to go up incrementally, and the cost to basically provide that is marginal. So we think both of these are really interesting asset-light ways to play an inflationary cycle that aren't commonly appreciated.
1: You know uh, the the inflation side of things is the underlying factor. Uh, before we go to the comments, because uh, there are some people who have some questions that they want to ask, I wanted to get to the other side. Let's talk about disinflation or a disinflationary deflationary environment. Say the future is not inflationary, but rather it's disinflationary or even deflationary. How do these particular assets that you're talking about perform both on the hard asset side and then also on the data side?
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com.
2: I think if you look at the past seven to 10 years, or even let's, let's shorten it up and say five to seven, you would think a, an inflationary tilt to your exposure via hard assets would have been a disaster. I would have guessed if you had something that was tilting towards inflation expectations, you'd have a negative total return over that five-year period. But if you look at a basket of both the royalty companies, the exchanges, the data companies, and some of the other more asset-light indirect inflation beneficiaries, they've actually compounded at a very healthy double-digit rate over five, seven-year periods. And I think that that is a really important factor, is that these businesses can chug along just fine under the status quo but they could do phenomenally well under incrementally higher 3 4 5% inflation and even in scenarios where CPI doesn't capture all of the inflation but in disinflation i would argue that the past 5 or 7 years has been disinflationary deflationary right. i think you're into a new you're into a whole new situation altogether and i can't even wrap my head around what would happen in that type of a world because all of a sudden, you don't have the real cost of debt for all of these global governments and businesses going down. It's actually going up. So, the people have been saying for years now, "Don't fight the Fed," and I think that any signs of that, they would basically throw everything that they have at it because that's a really, really dangerous situation. But to answer the question directly, I think that this portfolio would struggle under legitimate deflation. Whereas the upstream capital-intensive businesses might very well be restructured.
1: Right. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense, and I agree with you about the disinflation versus deflation. We've had a disinflationary environment. Uh, Deflation, debt deflation in particular, those are pernicious, and uh, that's not something that we've had since basically the 1930s. So uh, that that's that would be an outlier. So James, let me uh, let me run through some of the questions. I'll use this as an opportunity to tell the uh, viewers that if you have any questions, send them in now because uh, we're going to run through the rest of the questions and then uh, we'll call time at the end. Um, a lot of good questions on the underlying businesses here as well as inflation. But let me start here with Ralph, who has three questions. The first of which is how does. Uh, How does James expect uh, inflation to play out globally? And what he means is Europe, Asia, and the US, uh, and he's thinking, in particular, for developed nations.
2: Yeah, that's actually a really good point, because if you look at what's happening in Europe right now, it is wildly different from what's happening in the US in terms of things opening, cases declining, vaccination rates, and Europe is is structurally in, in, in a really difficult situation. Uh, you know, I think there's differences within a lot of the Asian economies, but they're arguably doing better than the US. So Again, I, I really want to make the differentiation between CPIs and these finite hard assets where I think it's almost a guarantee that all of these governments are going to be throwing trillions of dollars into different types of fiscal policies that are going to reflate or inflate some of the end markets. but. We definitely don't want to make a or don't want to make a strong opinion on what CPI is going to be doing, especially given the nuances of of Europe and, and within the full global context.
1: Uh, here's a second question from Ralph. Uh, so uh, he asked uh, how would uh, David consider buying or actually he says would David consider buying real estate uh, to profit off the depreciation of the mortgage uh, just for this purpose?
2: I think that on a, on a one-off basis, if you're a, a wealthy investor like Real Vision's friend Hugh Hedry, where he's borrowing it next to nothing to buy mansions in finite islands in the Caribbean, that's great. <laughs> um, but actually, we play <laughs> a little bit different asset light um, because it, it's, it's tough to scale. And obviously, he's in a unique situation down there. But think about something like Brookfield Asset Management, where granted, they have some capital invested alongside you but they're effectively the GP on hundreds of billions of dollars of real estate and global listed infrastructure, some of which is renewable. And Rather than being in that capital-intensive business where you're levered up in a property or a project where cap rates have been compressed so low, I'd much rather be sitting there at the GP level with Bruce Flatt at Brookfield, clipping those fees, and to the extent that they can basically benefit from that dynamic i feel like that's a really interesting asset light way to do it
1: right yeah uh, again asset light i do like how that permeates uh, what you're talking about is that uh, you don't you don't necessarily want the the assets but the the cash flow stream associated with those assets and uh you know not having the capex associated with owning the actual assets itself as much as possible uh i, I somehow i think i said david in there I, I, um I really meant James. Well, here's the third question from Ralph. Uh, he asks, uh, what are the best ways for young people to profit off the inflation other than investing in uh, one's education?
2: Oh, hmm. Well, I certainly would not want to do any, I would not want anything to do with the fixed income uh, world. I think that some of these asset light inflation beneficiaries are really interesting. And I think that they can refer to other events that Real Vision might have had in the not too distant past to look at other stores of value that might do well in the event that we were to have high inflation.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, I don't know if we want to get into this. You know that we're doing the crypto gathering right yeah, now. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm. Uh, so you you just you just tripped the magic word there when you talk about other stores of value. Uh, so uh, when you talk about other stores of value, what are you talking about exactly?
2: I think that people need everyone owes it to themselves to have a very long and hard look at the potential of blockchain and different related tokens. It's it's easy to dismiss and it's easy to just you know castigate people. But you know, I I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. The the first time Bitcoin reached a thousand before it collapsed, I was at a wedding and somebody at the, at the table was talking about blockchain and. I just completely dismissed him. I, you know, I went up, uh, I went up and changed tables, and and just like, what is this guy talking about? And then our CIO starts talking about. it, I was like, wow. And then I, I actually looked back. I was like, wow, this guy actually works for somebody who really knows what they're talking about uh, in terms of crypto and someone I respect a lot. And I I did myself the service of actually learning about it. And I think that everyone should learn about what these types of technologies can do in terms of a store of value. And if you come out with a conclusion that you want nothing to do with it, then you know you've done your diligence and you've reached your conclusion on your own.
1: Great. yeah, I think that is uh, that is good advice and uh, you know maybe that's it for crypto in this conversation but uh, very well said uh, James, I appreciate that. Um, here' Here's another question for you. It's from CB CB asks this uh, why do you hold so many exchange stocks in your portfolio?
2: I think that the exchange business model is just so incredible and just misunderstood. So if you were to look at the multiples on a lot of these growing technology platforms, just incredible multiples on cash flow. And I think that it's going to be interesting to see, in an inflationary world, and there's wage inflation, and then there's pressures on different channels within the consumers and supply chains. Can these companies actually maintain, they're promising to grow margins, can they even maintain them? But when you look at the exchanges and the nuances of each one of these end markets, the exchanges benefit so eloquently from a surge in inflation within each one of these regional locations. And they can do it in such a scalable manner that it's just a very unique business. But the market, at least in my opinion, the market views most of these as if they're cyclical, Transactional businesses, not these data powerful technology platforms. And so, the Intercontinental Exchange, for example, is, is one of my favorites here in the in the U.S. Where you know, they're dominant in, in brand and a couple of LNG contracts. And They have some interesting futures businesses as well. And I think their acquisition of L.E. May was brilliant. And what they're going to do with automating mortgages. But you can buy this at a five percent forward ca- free cash flow yield and. If our scenario comes to fruition, this business is going to compound at a very, very high rate of return. And if you look at the other exchanges we hold and look at some of the underlying drivers of what would drive activity within those exchanges, it just it it seems like they're just completely mispriced relative to the quality and the drivers of these businesses.
1: And you know, also I think about it from a Warren Buffett perspective. Maybe you can comment on this. I mean, Warren Buffett's always talking about moats. Uh, you, you can't have better moats than in these businesses, I, I suspect.
2: That's a great point, because in cash equity, so you go onto the New York Stock Exchange and buy a share of Google, there's no moat in that, because the SEC basically deregulated it, where you can trade and settle stock anywhere. But if you go to the Intercontinental Exchange or the Japan Exchange Group, and you want to trade one of their bespoke futures contracts... That can only be traded and settled on that exchange and only cleared in that clearinghouse. So, that's a very, very powerful moat. And it also promotes pricing power. So, those are two really unique characteristics where there are a couple of nascent exchange businesses that are trying to basically start and create new contracts from scratch. I think it'll be really interesting to see if they are successful. But the moats there are really interesting. And it actually just made me think of another. Comment from our chairman Murray Stahl, which is someone asked him recently about a geography, uh, Japan, for example. And I think a lot of people are digging into Japan, and they think, "Wow, it's getting really interesting." And it's it's been cheap forever. That's not what's interesting. I think what's cheap is you're seeing a shift in the psychology of how people are operating businesses, where they're being a little bit more entrepreneurial. But rather than, unless you have an expertise in stock picking why not just own the Japan Exchange Group? It's almost better to just own the exchange in the market you're attracted to than trying to, certainly better than buying a passive index that's cap-weighted. Or you can try to basically pick the best companies if you believe that you have the ability and the bandwidth to do that. Or you can buy the Japan Exchange Group, which has the Tokyo Stock Exchange, as well as the Osaka Derivatives Exchange, and some really interesting kind of new emerging businesses within both of those.
1: Yeah, very interesting. I I I like that play. Um, Let me give you two, uh, James. There are two questions on uh, mining uh, specifics about mining. The first one is from CB, who asked the last question, uh, who asks, uh, what are the most attractive commodity mining sectors right now? Because supply constraints are different across uh, the metals complex.
2: That's true. I think that anything that is going basically all of the conductive metals that are going into these infrastructure mostly to build out the power grid that's something that we're really focused on and you can look at some of the more unique rare earth markets but the companies tend to be very expensive and honestly rare earths aren't that rare it's just expensive and labor intensive to extract them so that that's kind of what china's competitive advantage was but i think a really good place to look is Glencore, if you look at all of their verticals, ignore their coal for a minute, which they get castigated for. But guess what? A lot of the world, they're heating their homes and cooking their food based on coal, especially outside of the OECD, but even Germany. You know, Germany basically has two power grids a renewable grid and a coal grid. So look past their coal for a minute, and they have f- fantastic reports. And they break down the supply and demand dynamics of copper, of zinc, of nickel, of cobalt, and of vanadium, and I think that all of those areas are really interesting to look at. And I think a sleeper—look at iron ore prices for delivery to to China, the sixty-two percent Platts contract. The amount of infrastructure that requires steel, and now especially that you're using more of the electric arc furnaces that are much more efficient and can't use kind of the raw the raw steel the way a blast furnace could. That's a really interesting market as well. So I I think that within all of those areas, there's a lot of areas that you
1: can find some really interesting opportunities. And lithium, what do you think of that space uh, specifically?
2: I think it's interesting. I think, again, it's a lot of the companies that are lithium-oriented kind of have this EV halo, so they're very expensive. Um, Obviously, there's differences between each one, but those are a little bit trickier because it's- uh, oftentimes, they're, they're combined within other businesses, and, and you know, it's, it's hard to see is exactly what the real battery technology that's going to win is going to be as well, where it doesn't look like the existing batteries, whether they be the brand new batteries that are coming out of EVs worldwide or more fuel cell type batteries, it, it doesn't appear that the technology that exists today is going to solve anything close to the 2050 uh, standards.
1: Interesting. Uh, You know, um, uh, here's another question on mining. This is the second one from Cecil, who's uh, asking about uranium. And we get uranium guys uh, every once in a while. Uh, um, uh, I'm trying to think, Adam Rodman, he's someone who talks about uranium. What's your view on uranium mining?
2: So, nuclear is the most efficient, safest, cleanest technology on earth. I mean, anyone who wants to go green, first of all, they should say, get everybody off call and go to combined cycle gas, and if feasible, go to nukes. It's it's undeniable. And I think the real climate experts tell you this. And people that understand how safe a properly operated nuke facility can be with proper disposal understand this. And so take this within the context of what I just said about my belief on nuclear power. How would I feel if somebody told me that they were building a new facility 25 miles from my house? I would not be very happy about it, and I would probably <laughs> be looking to get out of my house very quickly, and I'm a pragmatist about nuclear power. so I don't know how, where they're going to build these things, especially in developed nations, but you know, I think that there's going to be, and, and there's also new technologies out there for nuclear facilities that aren't 100% reliant on uranium. So It's something that we're watching. Uh, There actually is a very small uh, uranium royalty company in Canada that's worth checking out if you have a secular view on the space. But I think that's kind of a a somewhat simplistic top-down anecdote.
1: Yeah, very interesting because uh, let me put it this way: Uh, this is this popped in my head is uh, you had the independent mining uh, or the independent sector in oil. Okay, so we had the uh, EMPs, and we also had the refiners. Now, with the refiners, the interesting bit, the way that I understand it is that they came up because basically, uh, the majors w- weren't interested in refining because that's not where the money was, and they could source sour, heavy crude you know, take the existing uh, uh, complexes make them more complex and then have a greater profit as a result of that differential uh in terms of their crack spread that is something that's been happening over a 20 year time horizon now is that and and i caveat this by saying the, the here's the the where uranium comes in no u s. refiner has been built. Uh, a new refiner has been built in the United States in years. Why? Exactly the same thing that you just said about uranium. No one wants a refinery in their backyard. So is it possible that uh, we could see something where uh, you there's some sort of renewable uh, you, you know way to uh, deal with um, the existing infrastructure for Existing uh, power plants that are nuclear power plants—that something comes up in that regard.
2: I would certainly hope so, and I think that one of the things that I believe in is the innovation of mankind and American innovation as well. And I think that time and time again we've come up with really interesting solutions. But there's also you also have to look at physics and chemistry and science and. The the efficiency of fossil fuels, which can be very clean in, in terms of gas, gas is just such an obvious solution, especially if you can do it cleanly and extract it cleanly. In, in the US, we have a tremendous amount of liquefaction and export facilities where that just it, it's such an obvious link towards getting going, taking a step in the right direction. And also with nuclear, I think that in in the right situations and where it can be done without public outcry, I think that makes a lot of sense too. but a, a pragmatic approach to all of these problems is probably how what best serves everybody.
1: yeah, uh, let me go back to this uh, fiscal dominance and the uh, spending side of things uh, because Patrick is asking this question, James he asks, how does Biden's tax proposal uh? Slash potential tax increases play into Horizon Kinetics thinking? Does Horizon view tax increases as a threat to stocks? And I would say, actually, to your specific portfolio?
2: I think that it would be a marginal difference, especially if at the corporate level you saw kind of a bump when. We lowered the tax rate, but you know, all else equal, it shouldn't have necessarily changed the multiple. I don't think the multiple is necessarily going to con- contract if you see something higher at the corporate level. I, I think households are a little bit trickier, um, where a progressive tax again. I mentioned that the propensity to spend sits within the median and, and around the median household. So the ultra wealthy getting taxed more, I think it's just going to result in more and more people where. The, the amount of people leaving New York right now to set up shop in, in Florida is is crazy. And the amount of people that we've even seen leave the US altogether for to go to places like Puerto Rico for tax jurisdiction. So I, I think that they're going to have to be very careful about not alienating the people and the businesses that are really the lifeblood. But ultimately, I think that the uh, the, the secular tides are going to basically overwhelm any types of... Taxation that might be prohibitive of, of rising prices and activity.
1: Yeah, you, you know, uh, I, uh, it's funny when your lights go out. It reminded me of a story that, uh, uh, or part of my life where I lived in Europe and they had all of these uh, these motion uh, uh, sensors. One of them was like in the bathroom. So if you're in the bathroom for more than, say, three minutes, basically the lights go out and, and oh, you know, you to, like jump up and jump around and, <laughs> and go back on. So it's very funny to see that. Uh, so I, we have two more questions here still, uh, uh, James. We're almost at the hour. I would like to uh, go for an hour. If anyone wants to ask any more questions, this is the last call. Uh, Dwayne Pettis asks this um, for you. Uh, how will the value versus growth trade be affected by inflation, given that value stocks tend to have higher debt levels?
2: Yeah, I think that's a good point, but I think ultimately- You have some things that are working in the favor of value in the form of debt. Because especially if it's long duration fixed rate debt, you're paying back your debt in a cheaper currency. So you basically have a much lower interest burden. Now, obviously, there's going to be a time when you have to refi and those considerations have to be thought of. Um, And then also you have to also think about what is your cost structure going to look like. But I think it's a lot. Better on that side of the equation than growth because under inflation, growth stocks are the ultimate duration asset. They have far more duration than a 30 year bond, especially companies that have zero or little free cash flow to discount today. So basically, if you're saying, hey, I'll break even in five, 10 years, basically all of your valuation is in the terminal value. And so even a fractional change in that terminal value discount rate can change your present value dramatically. and I think that that rate sensitivity, you're starting to see it year to date, where look at what's happened to these high flying, no profit, what is it, the Goldman Sachs unprofitable tech index. Take a look at what's happened to that since you saw the 10-year back up to to where it's at today. So There is a very real sensitivity, and it's also going to hit the growth stocks in the form of uh, margin compression. Everybody's pricing in you know infinite growth and margin expansion. So what happens if growth is curtailed and the margins don't come through? So we're not really tactical investors, but given those variables I'd much rather be on the the value side of things than the growth because of that convexity, rate sensitivity of these ultra long duration things on the growth side.
1: Yeah, and I mean, if you look at the steepening of the yield curve, it's a de facto tightening to a certain degree, which has an impact on the terminal value. I go back to the internet bubble. If you think about uh, the tightening that the Fed was doing then, perhaps when people say there was no trigger for the internet bubble collapse, maybe that that was the trigger. That at some level, you know, people threw in the towel. They said, look, you know, the terminal values for these stocks mean you know, there's no uh, IRR here. That we're never going to 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 go to break even. We need to get out of growth and, and move, uh, move uh, to value. And certainly, that's what happened when the S and P. Uh, you know, there was a rotation of, into the S and P from the Nasdaq, and eventually, the whole thing sort of like collapsed uh, at the end because everything was overvalued. Yeah,
2: uh, that that very well could happen today as well, and I, and I think that the my personal theory this isn't even this isn't necessarily the view of my firm has always been that these digital names that were the high flyers during the lockdown there was going ultimately gravity wins and gravity was going to be discount rate and how much profit you can earn and the full reopening of the U.S. however you want to define that but when you can measure economic activity in the US at 90% plus of pre-pandemic levels. Personally, I think from a behavioral standpoint, people are going to question all of these work from home, digital forever types of businesses that are trading at these multiples. And That in conjunction with pressure on discount rates and pressure on margins is going to be really tough for, you name it, fad stock of the last 18 months to continue at this pace.
1: Yeah, agreed. Uh, the last question for you here. I'm trying to get the name here. It's Shreene. Uh, can James comment on brokerages? On brokerages? Yeah, because you were yeah. talking about exchanges. Sure. Yeah. L- uh, so love, what about brokerages?
2: Love brokerages, and I think one of the best examples, which is very apropos today with what's happening in the Suez Canal, is shipping brokers. So there's. A very interesting shipping broker that's publicly traded in London. And think about, look at Maersk today, and look at the look at shipping rates right now. Where a year ago you would have never thought that shipping rates could be where they are, nor utilization rates near hundred percent in the container space. But you also are tying up billions and billions of dollars in owning and operating these vessels. You have the IMO 2020 fuel standards, which I think still hasn't fully worked its way through the system. You have staffing, you have all of these hurdles, which is why Marisken and its peers trade it very modest, even down multiples. But what if you're a shipping broker where you simply earn a margin on A, the higher leasing rates, and then B, the higher volume of leasing? And so, yeah, you'll have to pay a higher commission and maybe hire a new a broker or two, but it's a wonderful business model. Same thing with insurance. If look at the most recent Marsh McLennan uh, insurance survey on the trajectory and volume of premiums and underwriting, so you have a positive underwriting cycle in terms of volume, as well as the firmest pricing we've seen in seven to 10 years. Rather, insurance companies are going to have a tough time with a flat yield curve because they have to invest all of that float to basically earn something in excess of their underwriting profit. But if you're a broker and you're simply just earning that spread on volume and premium, it's really the sweet spot to be. And you know, i, I mentioned that both of these both the insurance broker and shipping broker traded pretty reasonable valuations relative to those fundamentals. So, love the space.
1: Excellent. Yes. Uh, so, James, I mean, great discussion. I learned a lot personally in terms of hard assets and also asset light strategies. So I want to uh, thank you for taking the time to walk us through that and to answer the questions and hope to have you back on Real Vision soon.
2: Yeah, this was great. I really enjoyed it. And uh, when I come back, I'll make sure to set my light timer a little bit longer.
1: (laughs) Excellent. Well done. Thank you again.
2: Thanks so much.